All right. Well, if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to open it up to Mark chapter 13 as we will conclude our time in Mark chapter 13 this morning. Um, Next week, we're gonna take a break from the Gospel of Mark for six weeks, and we're going to be focusing on the theme throughout the scripture of intergenerational discipleship. That means that it is God's design, not that generations are in silos doing their own thing with people of their ages, but rather the design for the church is that we are a family, where we are interacting with one another and shaping one another. And not only are we going to be looking at that in our worship gatherings, but we actually, in our life groups, are going to be studying that further. And so I would encourage you that this is a great time, uh, if you are not already connected to a life group, to join in with a life group so you can not only begin to form those connections, but you can take advantage of going deeper into what we're studying over the next six weeks. Uh, A part of being a multi-generational and intergenerational church is a priority that we place as a church on uh, our young people. We see them as an incredible responsibility and opportunity to make an impact on the kingdom. Uh, With the school year uh, starting soon, this is the time where we are looking for commitments for those who might serve in our children's and student ministries. We do at this time have a lot of holes uh, that need to be filled uh, for all ages. And so I would encourage you, if you are able, uh, to sign up and serve. If you're a parent and you have a child who's a part of our children's student ministry is an expectation that you serve in some capacity. Uh, But for all of us, maybe some can serve weekly, some biweekly, and some at least once a month. And that would certainly help. Uh, I personally study, or excuse me, help on Wednesday nights uh, with our children's ministry. And I invite you to participate in doing that as well. Well, uh, we are at the conclusion of Mark chapter 13 and a series we have titled, It's the End of the World as We Know It and I feel fine. And I wanna read uh, an article from the Baptist Faith and Message one more time that I think kind of summarizes where we land on what is clear about the last days. And here's what it says. It says, God in his own time and his own way will bring the world to its appropriate end. According to his promise, Jesus Christ will return personally and visibly in glory to the earth. The dead will be raised and Christ will judge all men in righteousness. The unrighteous will be consigned to hell, the place of everlasting punishment. The righteous and the resurrected and glorified bodies will receive their reward and will dwell forever in heaven with the Lord. And so there's a lot more that the scripture says about the last days. um, And really it's hard to fully decipher what is clear. And so whenever we're reading uh, any passage of scripture that is prophetic, whether that's in the Old Testament or New Testament, we need to put on bifocals and we need to look at it through the lens of what might have taken place in the immediate context of the scripture and what might take place farther down the road. But in addition to that, when we read any prophecy and we read anything specifically talking about a day that is to come or the last days, we need to ask a very important question. That is, what matters for right now? And so today, as we conclude this series, I want to conclude with this thought. And if there's anything you take away probably from our time, any application from our time in Mark 13 and dealing with these things, it is this. Then and there should lead the Christian to here and now, not when and where. I'll say that again. Then and there, meaning whenever that is and wherever that is that the end of things deals with, should lead us as Christians 
to how we are going to live here and now more than it leads us to ask questions about when that will be and where that will take place. Mark chapter 13, verse 32 through 37. Jesus says, But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Jesus begins this closing of this section of scripture by saying, but concerning that day. Now, that day is a phrase that is metaphorical. And we, we know that this is used metaphorically here because he also uses the word hour, a word, a phrase he often uses, which is metaphorical for a season or a time uh, that's going to take place. Now, the Old Testament reinforces this as well because throughout the Old Testament, you see the use of that day or this hour talking about this day that is going to come of God's judgment, this day where God is going to bring about justice. And sometimes it's referring to a time in which God intervenes in human history and brings judgment and therefore justice, but also sometimes it's referring to that ultimate day of God's judgment and justice. And, and those things do go together. Judgment is what's required for justice. A judge has to make a decision for the just thing to happen. And what the scripture is telling us is that God is just, and he will judge to bring about ultimate justice. So we see this as things that happen throughout history. And then we also see this day in which God is going to come and he's going to make all things right. Jesus says, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Now people talk about knowing when that ultimate day is, when that ultimate hour is. If you go back in Mark 13, Jesus has actually alluded to the fact that there will be people who come during times of tribulation who say they know, say they know the way to escape tribulation, and they are deceiving you. Jesus says no one knows, not even angels in heaven, he says. He says not even the angels who are in heaven serving God's ultimate purpose, not only they don't even know. John Calvin says, it would be proof of excessive pride and wicked covetousness to desire that we who creep on the earth should know more than is permitted to the angels in heaven. Now, he's not saying that we as humans, as men and women, are inferior to angels, but he's saying we're on earth. Our current perspective is limited in comparison to angels. And so people often talk about how they can figure out when Jesus is coming back when that day is going to come. And yet the Bible tells us the angels don't even know this. Now, there's a lot I could say there, but I actually don't have to because Jesus goes even a step further and he says, nor the son. Jesus says, the son of God doesn't know. Now, J. Vernon McGee explains what is taking place in the incarnation. That means Jesus coming to earth. He says this, the servant character of Jesus represents his most typical and true humanity. 
he took upon him the form of a servant. When he became a man, he limited himself in order to be made like us. He was not omnipresent, omniscient, or omnipotent when he became a man. The Bible tells us that Jesus was not created. Jesus has existed, Colossians chapter one and John chapter one since the beginning of time. He was there when the world was founded. Jesus is God. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is all-present. But when Christ came to the earth, he took on the form of a man. So he was not all of those things. Now, this is kind of a mystery how Jesus could be fully God and fully man. And it's also very beautiful that the only thing that would be sufficient for our atonement of sins, our being made right, God himself came to this earth in the form of a man. It's very beautiful. But what our text today is pointing out is that people say that they have figured out or think they can figure out when Jesus is going to return. And Jesus says, while he's on earth, he doesn't even know when he's going to return. Now, there have been some famous end-of-day predictions in my life. I graduated high school in 2000, class of 2000. And... If you were a senior in high school in 99, entering into 2000, you are being told you're never going to graduate because the clock's going to change from 99 to 2000. And because the computer doesn't know that, God can't keep the world alive. (laughs) And so, you know, we need to party like it's 1999. A few years later, after that was fine, in 2012, really we begin to hear about this 2010, 2011, people begin to say the Mayans, in their very sophisticated society for the time, but in reality, very, you know, <laughs> uh, primitive society, their calendar didn't go past 2012, we think, but it didn't go past 2012. That's it. They must have figured it out. And so the world is not going to keep going. And I'll tell you that it's not only during my lifetime, I mean, specifically, specifically if you look back to the 60s and 70s, and I wonder if there's some correlation between rapid drug use and people think the world's going to end, but that's okay. Uh, people really had tons of predictions about when the world was going to end that many people bought into. But it's not just these mass media predictions. There are small cults that are formed around the idea that we've figured out when the world is going to end. I grew up not that far from Lake City, Florida, and there's a group in Lake City, Florida called the End Timers, and they've kind of waned in recent days, but really when I was a kid, they were pretty big, and, and basically all these people believe this guy Charles Mead had figured it out, and so people begin to live on like a compound and devote their life to, to him and their way of life, and, and they focus on that. Maybe you remember a more popular one, that's the Branch Davidians in Waco, Texas, and David Koresh, one of the things that he did to get followers was he said that he understood you know, when the world was going to end, or perhaps you remember Marshall Applewhite and Heaven's Gates, uh, who believed that when the Hellbop comet came by, a spaceship was going to be there to rescue them from the end of the world. And so they all drank cyanide because that would make their souls go to the end of the world. But it's not just this mass media predictions and it's not just these small cults. There's even what people would call sects of SCCTS of Christianity that I would say are not actually Christianity that in many ways were formed around the idea of figuring out when the world was going to end. Joseph Smith who's the founder of Mormonism, who most Mormons would say is a prophet who is to be trusted, said that the world would end when he died, which I believe was in 1891. 
He cannot be trusted. Charles Taze Russell created a cult that would eventually bring about what we call today the Jehovah's Witnesses, who splintered off from Protestant Christianity and predicted that the world would end in 1914. So when 1914 came uh, and went, the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, that's the people who uh, publish uh, material to give to people who knock on your door and they hand you things that look like graphics from 1914 still, that's the Watchtower and Bible Tract Society. Whenever that came, here's what they said. They said, oh, well, it was actually a spiritual return. So we were right, but you can't see that Jesus returned. And since 1914, the Watchtower and Bible Tract Society have made nine other predictions about the end of the world, all not true. They cannot be trusted. Ellen White, the founder of the Seventh-day Adventist, had multiple predictions as to when the world would end, and she was wrong about all of them. Now, some people are legit and just grew up in Seventh-day Adventism, and um, you know they don't really know any different, but some are cults. And they're taking the Bible and having prophecy conferences and lectures and watching the nightly news and trying to figure it all out. But it's not just mass media predictions. It's not just small cults. It's not just these branches off of Christianity that would say are not indeed Christianity anymore. But even within evangelical Christianity, we are not exempt from this. You see, as Bible-believing Christians, we know some stuff. But we weren't intended to know all the stuff. And what we don't have are the things that people are always looking for. And what we need to recognize is that the phases of God's activity are often conveyed by the prophets in the Bible as almost one reality. And so that's what makes this so difficult. It makes it difficult to know exactly where we are in the timeline. And if we are prepared with humility to acknowledge that difficulty, then we can proceed with great caution, and to our great encouragement about these things. But if we are not prepared to do that, then we will be left to the mercy of those who are going to explain to us the details as they understand them. And we tend to rally around the person that intrigues us most or the person whose personality we like the most. Whoever's Bible study, excuse me, whoever's study Bible you have, that's probably the view that you have adopted about these things. John Hagee, Jerry Falwell, and the Left Behind guys, LaHaye and Jenkins, have all made exact predictions about when the world would end that did not come true. Pat Robertson of the 700 Club makes one about every single week of his life. And since I don't have a study Bible, I know none of you have adopted my view. But here is what we need to accept. Only God knows when that day is. Only God knows when that day is. Let me ask you this question. How do we know anything? Well, God has chosen to reveal it to us. He's shown it to us. You see, God reveals things to us through what we call general revelation. That means there are things that can be known by anyone. Creation reveals certain things about who we are and about God, ultimately. C.S. Lewis writes about our inner conscience, which tells us certain things about what are right. And you see the moral thread throughout all of human history because of what's written on the hearts of men. 
history reveals certain things to be true. And anyone can see these things. But in addition to that, there is what is called specific revelation. That means things that we would not know just by living, but things that have to be revealed to us. And, and God reveals them to us through his word. And so we have the Bible. We also have the Holy Spirit, which speaks to us. And most fully, we have the person of Christ, which reveals who God is. And we only know any of these things through the grace of God. When that day is... When Jesus is returning, this is something that God has not chosen to reveal to us. Most of us also do not know when we will die. We may be able to get a good idea of that based on our condition and medicine and science, but we don't know precisely. In fact, there are a lot of things we don't know, a lot of things we can't see. And we need to embrace that only God can see the entire picture. Only God can see the entire picture. Now, I don't know about you, but I want to understand things. And I want to know why. And I'm a little bit of a control freak. My wife might say, a little bit? Because I want to know. But here's what I've come to realize. My desire to understand and to have control can be a barrier to my Christian maturity. We will never fully understand some things. We were not created to fully understand those things, and we are not God, and we do not have the capacity to fully understand those things. And when you embrace this, it is life-changing. It is freeing. Because there are some things that I've come to realize, it's not my job. It's not my job to figure that out. It's not my job to make that person do that thing. And why they don't, I don't know. But that's God's job. And the question is, do I trust him? And do I have faith in him? We know that only God sees the entire picture. And specifically, only God knows when that day is. The perfect time for him to come for his glory and for our goodness. Now, here's the deal, though. I do know some things about what I should be doing until that day. Alistair Begg says this, our ignorance as to the timing of Christ's second coming provides no excuse for our being unprepared. I'll say that again. Our ignorance as to the timing of Christ's second coming provides no excuse for our being unprepared. You think about it like this. When you leave your children at home and you say, do this before I get home or don't do this while I'm gone and they don't know precisely when you're returning, but that fact that they don't know precisely when you're going to return should not affect what they do while you are gone. They still have been given clear instructions as to how to conduct themselves while you were gone. You think about it like this. If you are studying, if, excuse me, if you are in a class and your teacher says, I can give you a pop test at all times, so you, anytime, so you need to always be familiar with what we are going over in class. And then they delay in that pop test and you begin to say, eh, they're never going to give me a test. You have been told, be prepared with the material 
that we're going over because I could test you at any point. If you are a backup on a sports team, you ought to know that at any moment that coach could call you in and it is your time and you need to be ready for that time. Jesus says in verse 33, be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. This implies the active dimension of being prepared. Now, in some manuscripts, it says, be on guard, keep awake, be praying. And, and that's not actually included in the earliest Greek manuscripts, but certainly prayer is a part of being on guard and keeping awake. And Jesus says, this time is coming. And this opportune time, it will be here. We don't know when it is, but it is coming. And then he says this, it is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake, therefore... Stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Now, to get more views on YouTube, I thought about titling the sermon, Stay Woke, and just seeing what people uh, did. <laughs> but I decided that was probably not the best idea. But here, and if you don't know what woke means, you can ask your neighbor after uh, service. Here we see Jesus telling his people, be awake, be present. And he uses this idea of a, of a doorkeeper, which if you go back to the Old Testament, commonly throughout the Old Testament was this idea of the watchman who looked out for somebody who might come and you know, try to seize the city and so to always be ready, always be prepared for that moment. And Jesus is using the same idea to say, hey, I've left, metaphorically, and I've given you authority and you know what you ought to be doing until I come back. You see, we can, can't figure out, we can't figure out when he is coming back but we can figure out how to live for him right now. We can't figure out when he is coming back. Let that go. But we can figure out how to live for him right now. And I would ask you, which of those is more of what you're passionate about and consumed with and focused on? And there are many places in scripture that just reinforce what Jesus is teaching here. And as I just kind of begin to wrap up, I want to use three passages of Scripture. I'm not going to be able to explain all these passages of Scripture, but I just want to read them over us. I'll begin with first, excuse me, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 through 13. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 through 13. As the author here, Peter, is talking about this day of the Lord, he says this. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. 
because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth when all which righteousness dwells. Peter says, God is patient. God would be just in ending the world the moment we sin. But the reason God has delayed is he wants people to come to repentance. But there will be a day when the judgment of God comes, when the things as we know them pass away, and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And Peter is saying, live for that coming kingdom. Live a life of righteousness, right standing with God. Live a life in holiness and godliness, being set apart and trying to be who God wants you to be. I now go to 1 Thessalonians chapter five. I'm gonna read verse one through 11 of 1 Thessalonians chapter five, where Paul says this to the church in Thessalonica. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. I like what Paul says to them. He says, look, concerning times or seasons, you don't need to know anything about that because you know Jesus. And since you know the glory and the grace of Jesus, you know all that you need to know. So stay awake. So, and he uses this idea of, of drunkenness and soberness here. And Jesus, even in, his, in the Olivet Discourse, he uses that as well. Luke tells us in Luke 21, verse 34, that Jesus says, but watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. So you have drunkenness, you know what that means, but dissipation is really the aftermath of drunkenness. It's, it's this idea of kind of being hung over. And here's what Jesus is saying. He's literally saying, I'm coming back and don't miss it because you're hungover or drunk. It's kind of funny, but it's also kind of not. He's saying, don't live this life where you are drunk off the things of this world so that you don't see the life that God has called you to live right now. And, and, and it's easy to kind of point to people who are, you know, consumed with drugs and how that causes them to miss life. But he also includes in that, and that's certainly applicable, but he also includes that people who are intoxicated by money and people who are intoxicated by the idea of the ideal family and people who are intoxicated by the life they want for their children 
and people who are intoxicated by their ego and the success they could get. And he says, people are hungover and they're drunk and they care about this life so much that they miss the reality of the coming kingdom. I'll look at one more passage here dealing with this, and that's actually in Matthew chapter 24, verse 37 through 40. And here's what it says. These are the words of Jesus. It says, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. The two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Jesus says, in the days of Noah, people were living their lives without any regards to the judgment of God for the way that they're living their lives. Now, as a Christian, when we think of the judgment of God, we are not afraid. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8 says that perfect love casts out all fear. But here's what I would suggest to you. Love casts out fear, but so do several other things. Ignorance casts out fear. Alcohol casts out fear. Passion for certain things casts out fear. Presumption and stupidity, they cast out fear. C.S. Lewis says this, it is very desirable that we should all advance to that perfection of love in which we shall fear no longer. But it is very undesirable until we have reached that stage that we should allow any inferior agent to cast out our fear. You see, the judgment of God is real. And when we understand the cross of Jesus Christ, the mercy of God, we are no longer afraid of that judgment because we know that when Christ look, God looks on our sins, he sees not who we are for our sins, but he sees the grace of Jesus Christ, the cross of Jesus Christ. And we stand confident in judgment, not because of our works and our morals, but because of who Jesus is. But what I would suggest to you is that many of you in this room and watching online, you're not worried about the fear of judgment because you are intoxicated by the things of this world and you have ignored the reality of judgment. And you should be afraid of that judgment. Because if you're judged for the life that you've lived, you fall short of the holiness and the goodness and the justice of God. And if you have not bent your heart to allow the Lord to shape you, then wherever you would be for eternity would actually not be heaven. Because it wouldn't be heaven if you were there not listening to the Lord. And for the Christian who then understands this reality and the depth of this reality and the hope that comes from being loved by God, we want to then live our lives not in such a way that stops everything we're doing, but such a way that affects everything we're doing. It's that important. It's the end. 
It's eternity. It shouldn't cause us to panic, Christian, but it should give us a sense of urgency. Here's what the Bible says. The world we know it will end. Jesus will return in glory. There will be a final judgment. No one is getting away with anything. Heaven and hell are real, and they'll be occupied by people forever. And the kingdom of God, ruled over by Jesus Christ, the king of kings over all people for all eternity will exist. And for those that are in him, we will share in his goodness and glory for all of eternity. That's what the Bible says. And so I wanna ask you this question now. Does your life reflect that Jesus descended to earth in humility ascended to heaven in victory and will return victoriously to create a new heaven and a new earth for those who have humbled themselves before him. I'll ask that question again. Does your life, I don't want you thinking about the people around you right now or who you're gonna see later today or what you have to do next. Does your life, only you and God know the answer to this question. Does your life reflect that Jesus, God, descended to earth in humility, ascended to heaven in victory, and will return victoriously to create a new heaven and a new earth for those who have humbled themselves before him? One of my earliest memories of television is watching Saturday Night Live and there was a lady called the church lady and she would ask a question. Is this where you wanna be when Jesus comes back? And that's a funny statement if you've ever watched those clips. But it's serious. Are you living your life in the reality that Jesus is king? And that his kingdom will exist for all of eternity. So let me ask you. If Jesus came back tomorrow, what did you not do that you know you should have done? He who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, James chapter 4 says, is sinning. Why are you delaying? Who is it that you wish you would have spoken with? Resolve things with. Talk to about who Jesus is. How might you have given your money differently up until this point? Or spent your money differently up until this point? How might you plan for the next generation while being urgent today? And ultimately, I would ask you this question, what is the Holy Spirit telling you that you're not doing? I don't know the nuances of all of this on all of our lives here this morning and who are watching online this morning. God does. And maybe, maybe it's that you need help. And I'm telling you, like our minds get this, but the moment we open our social media 
or the moment somebody says something to us we don't like, or the moment we're around something that reminds us of our past, or whatever it might be, the moment we're distracted by how tough life is, we stop listening to the Holy Spirit. But I'm asking you right now to commit to listening to the Holy Spirit and obeying him, and to living your life as if he is the king every day, with a sense of urgency that eternity is what really matters. And so what is it that you're not getting help with? Who is it that you're not talking to? What is it that you're not dealing with? And I'm urging you and pleading you to deal with it now. And if you're here today, and look, if you, if you listen to me preach, you know I do not talk like this on a regular basis. If you don't, you just have to believe me and go back and listen to sermons online because there's proof there. There is no guarantee today when you get on Highway 20 in your vehicle that you will ever get off of Highway 20. Not because the traffic's so bad, that it is that bad. But there is no promise that you will live past today. And if you have medicated the void in your life between you and God, and you know that you have not settled things with God, I pray today that you would stop running and you would realize when you stop running that God has been running to you all of your life and you would place your hands in his life. You would place your life in his hands. And Christians, may we live our lives with the urgency, the selflessness that Jesus has come for us, that he is victorious and that eternity will be spent basking in his glory and receiving his goodness. I pray that that affects the way we live right now. Pray with me. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. And Lord, I pray that we know that there is a then and there. And yet, Lord, we would not be more consumed with the uncertainties of when and where or any uncertainties of what our life may look like a few months from now or years from now. But, Lord, we would listen to you today and that we would see the goodness that comes from trusting you today. God, we need your help where we fall short in this and where we are weak in this. And we thank you that you have promised that you are not just a God who left and is coming back, but you're a God who's with us right now. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done through this body of believers on earth as it is in heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.